Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast with WHIO meteorologist McCall Rydags and Kirsty Zontini. Remember, you can listen to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast anytime you want on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and WHIO.com. Hi, McCall. Hey, Kirsty. How are you? Uh, not bad. We're getting into the end of September. We're about to kick off October. We've transitioned from summer to fall. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot happening. Um, really excited, though, to kick off the fall season as it is my favorite time of year. I think in Ohio, it, I mean, I think it is the favorite time of year for most people because we have the best fall colors. I mean, I think we do. And mm. it's fun. It's a transitional season. So you still get some of the heat. You still start to get the first frost and the first taste of cold weather without having, you know, the middle of February when it's just snowy and cold and pretty gross. So uh, I think it's a welcomed change, uh, especially since we did have a pretty hot, I mean, summer. I mean, we were definitely still active. We were very warm. We've had, you know, a nice dry stretch going so far for this month. So it'll be interesting to see as we transition to October, if we end up starting to get some more rain, but we have been we're the eighth driest on record right now for September. So hopefully great. we're going to get a little bit of that rain. That'll help out our, our fall foliage. You know, yes. you want all the right ingredients, the sunny skies, the cool nights. You don't want it to be completely dry. So we'll see how that goes. And as you mentioned, the Miami Valley in Ohio as a whole is gorgeous for getting outside for fall activities and seeing the foliage. 125 species of trees, which is crazy. Also gives you a ton of allergies in the springtime, but let's yeah. just enjoy the color. Exactly. But, uh, but I'm excited that we can still get outside and enjoy it before we get into the winter months. Exactly. So our guest today, this is fun. We have not had anybody from the Miami Conservancy District on our podcast before. Um, and it is important when we're talking about this, we're talking about flood protection, our rivers, management of our water locally. So it is, um, you know, really special to have that because, you know, we often think of springtime when it comes to flooding. When people hear about flooding locally, they think of the great 1913 flood. And that really did spark off a lot of changes for how we're managing our water. But also just our waterways at the Great Miami River, um, you know, being able to see some of the beauty that we have and the recreation that people can enjoy. It's fall. You can still safely get out on the water. So we have two special guests, possibly three. We'll have to see how the rest of our morning goes. Uh, but I do want to introduce our guests here briefly. They're going to talk a little bit more about what they do specifically. But we have Kurt Reinhardt. He is the chief engineer for the Miami Conservancy District, as well as Mike Eckbert. He is the uh, manager for for water resource monitoring. So monitoring our water, our hydrogeologist, that will be very fun. As meteorologists, it's always interesting to talk to other science nerds. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Kurt, let's start with you a little bit more about what you do specifically. Okay, I am, as you said, I'm the chief engineer here at MCD, also the chief of operations. So pretty much everything to do with the um, management of the flood protection system, of the dams and the levees, of the, the regular maintenance of the system, and also the um, involved with the engineering, um, studying and improving and, and making sure the system works the way it's supposed to work. So we do provide the flood protection. Yeah, and that's a huge, I mean, flood protection, we can't talk about it enough, how important it is. Um, when we'll talk a little bit more actually in just a minute, but then Mike, let's talk about what you do. So I'm basically the data geek. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm totally uh, into, uh, into all kinds of different measurements of water. So, but, but basically what, what my team does is we monitor the amount of uh, precipitation 
in uh, coming into the drainage area of the Great Miami River. Uh, we work with uh, cooperative agencies like USGS. We monitor the stream flow. So all the stream gauges that are telling you how much and how high the water is at certain areas, that's, uh, that's my team working in conjunction with USGS. Um, we also get into uh, looking at water quality. So we do uh, some measurements of water quality in our aquifer system, you know, which provides drinking water to most of the people that live in the Miami Valley, as well as looking at water quality in our uh, rivers and streams. We do some studies, so yeah, all kinds of exciting things to me. Not to you, to everybody. Water is so important. Safe drinking water, uh, being safe when you live near you know, rivers and streams so that you're not flooding out every year. Uh, this is a, a very important podcast. And like I said, even though it's the fall and you may not think a lot about flooding, we are heading into the winter. And that's winter and spring when we can get a lot of snow in the winter. And then as that snow melts and we get rain in the springtime, those are really the ingredients that could lead to some, some flooding in the Miami Valley. I want to start with you, Kurt, a little bit because, again, it's uh, pretty common that people automatically go to 1913 um, and the Great Flood. So either one of you can answer this, of course. But what changes came from that big flood when it comes to the Conservancy District and um, the flood management, levees and dams and things of that nature? Um, I would say major changes affecting everything we all do every day. Um, of course, as you mentioned, the Great Flood of 1913 was not only the worst natural disaster in our area, but really in Ohio and, and pretty much across the mid Midwest. It was a, a you know, the Dayton area had seen flooding kind of on a regular basis ever mm -hmm. since they settled here in the late 1700s, but nothing like they'd seen in 1913. It was just catastrophic beyond imagination. Um, the local leaders said, folks, we've had enough of this. We can't live like this. Yeah. So that's when they started looking at how can we protect the city from flooding from the Great Miami River. Um, they brought in Arthur Morgan, who was a young engineer in Tennessee who had made a name for himself in drainage issues and he got on horseback and rode up and down the river from Sydney clear to the Ohio River um, looking at where the flooded areas were how the cities were affected um, <clears throat> pulled together a staff of engineers and came up with this proposal for building these large dams to hold massive amounts of water um, making the river channels and levees in the cities work with the dams. This really out in left field idea that nobody had ever proposed before. Um, everybody thought he was nuts. It's like, you can't do this. But he was determined that this is the best way to protect the cities from flooding. Um, of course, now we're talking about properties from Shelby County to Hamilton County, not just Dayton, but multiple right. counties building these dams that back water into um, farm areas. So it was really a major undertaking. Um, and there was no legal way to do that. So the first thing they had to do is write a new law in the, the state legislature, come up with a new law that, known as the Conservancy Act, which allows for a special purpose district that crosses county boundaries, crosses city boundaries, and also has the power to collect assessments so you can actually pay for this. Um, 
got the law passed within a year. Um, Conservancy District was formed in 1915, so just about two years after the flood itself. Um, and our charge was to build this flood protection system. Um, they pulled together a lot of resources, kept doing the engineering and the plans and getting it ready. Um, about the time they were going to construction, um, what we now know as World War I broke out. And so that affected supplies, affected manpower, affected the ability to fund it. But they pushed on by the by 1918, it was under construction. Um, by 1922, the system was actually built and working. Wow. So just a monumental feat, um, even today, but even more so 100 years ago. Right. That's I kind of have a, and I have a question, because it was 100 years ago that these structures were being built. So what kind of assessments are still being done today to make sure that those structures are still sound today to make sure that we don't have any break of any of those dams. I mean, it wasn't too long ago we saw that uh, broken levee up in, in the Michigan area. You know, that's yeah. a very scary thought. And as you said, as more and more people um, build homes and things perhaps closer to these waterways, you know, you want to make sure everybody's safe. Yeah, and that's really a main part of what we do today. Um, not only doing the maintenance just to make sure they operate properly, um, but also um, they were designed and built 100 years ago. So technology has changed, our knowledge has changed. Mike's collecting more and more data so we can <laughs> crunch the numbers and see what's really happening. So a big part of what we do is studying the structures. Um, we're, we're currently doing some structural analysis at our dams. Um, because we really don't have the computations from 100 years ago. We want to make sure that um, structurally they are sound. Um, over the past 20 years, we've invested more than $20 million in upgrading the foundations at the dams to make sure we're at 21st century um, standards as far as um, earth pressures and seepage and those type of things. So, yeah, that's really um, a major task today, as McCall said, we don't want to ever experience what they had in Michigan last year, um, mm -hmm. things like the, the big failure in California five years ago when the spillway failed. I mean, these things are happening. This is man-made structures, and we have to make sure that everybody's safe. Yeah, that is, I mean, I'm sure what, anytime you see something like that fail, uh, it probably locally, you guys are all like, let's make sure we're still doing what we need to do. I want to exactly. pause real briefly um, because Sarah was able to join us. Hello, Sarah. Let's say, let me show you. Hi. So Sarah Hall, Hello, welcome. How are you? Good. Thank how you are you? So Sarah, Great, real you. quickly, could you introduce yourself for what you do specifically for the Miami Conservancy District? Uh, my name is Sarah Hippensteel Hall, and I am the wa manager of Watershed Partnerships for the Miami Conservancy District. Wonderful. Well, welcome. We're going to talk more about what that means in just a minute. We were just going over with Kurt a little more about the 1913 flood and how that sparked off, you know, our whole dams and levees and, and programs that are keeping us and residents of the Miami Valley safe from flooding. Um, and this could be for you, Mike, maybe a little bit more of a question as our, you know, data guy. Uh, what, I guess, is there a specific time of year 
that you guys are the busiest or that your dams and levees, you guys are really working hard to monitor. Um, as you said, you work with USGS, which McCall and I do all the time. That's what we look at a ton when it comes to alerting if you know there's going to be any sort of river flooding or talking about streams coming out of their bank. So what what does the year look like for you and your team? Well, uh, you're talking a little bit about you know when when are we most likely to see really high river flows on, in the Great Miami River? Mm -hmm. um, the short answer is you can see them at any time of year. Um, but if we kind of look at the statistics and everything, you know, spring, you know, it shouldn't come as any surprise. Uh, you, you know, spring tends to be the time um, when we probably get uh, the, the highest frequency of, of really high river flows. Um, but again, I want to emphasize, you can get them at any time of year. Yeah. Is there any, I guess, locations in particular that you guys that were typically seeing are flooding or over time you've noticed maybe that um, you're dealing with areas that maybe didn't used to flood like 40 or 50 years ago, but now as we continue to populate and people are building more, um, how does that work in with, with what you guys are doing? Are you able to give advice or do you just have to like notify like you're building on a floodplain? You know what I mean? Is there a connection between the two? Well, I mean, I'll start out with the, the Miami Conservancy District's flood protection system. I mean, we, we protect, you know, to make a, a long story short, the downtown areas of all the communities along the Great Miami River from Piqua all the way down to Hamilton. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our system is designed, you know, and, and Kurt can get into this a little more later, but we're designed for a really, really big event. Okay. And, um, you know, we keep the Great Miami River from overtopping the levees in those downtown areas. And um, our system up to this point in time, I mean, I don't think we've had really much more than about 30% of the capacity in any of uh, the basins behind our dam. So our system is doing what it's always intended to do and, and, and protecting. Um, are there areas, you know, low-lying areas, maybe in some of our communities that after we get a really heavy rainfall that, that can experience um, flooding? Sure. Um, and, that, and that can happen. But the, the, our flood protection system, you know, it, it's doing what it's been doing for almost 100 years now. And we haven't really seen a change in that. That's wonderful. I have a quick question, too, about that. So we talk about heavy rains, and McCall, you can chime in on this as well, because these are uh, trends that we see as we continue to warm. We are seeing more rain events that are you know, heavy rain events or that the frequency changes. Does that change um, your plans or is this something that you guys are working on or looking into the fact that we get some pretty heavy rains pretty frequently? We talked to um, so uh, a meteorologist and he studies climate as well out of Ohio State, Aaron, Dr. Aaron um, Custer quite a bit. And that was something that he had studied was that the frequency of our rain events have been changing over the decades and that we're getting large, heavier events as well. Um, so how does that play into the future of the Conservancy District or into the future of what our, our flood plan is doing? Um, does it change anything or is it just something that, you know, like you said, we're, you're only 30% and we've had quite a bit of heavy rain, but we don't, haven't necessarily gotten anything that would cause major concern. But I guess, is that something you guys are thinking about in the future is, is how our, you know, earth is changing and how our weather events can change as well with it? 
Um, well, I'll, I'll chime in a little bit with some, some climate statistics um, and, and, and then I'll, I'll let others also uh, join in. But yes, uh, our climate is exactly what uh, I think you meant, Dr. Aaron, Dr. Aaron Wilson. Oh, um, yes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Sam Custer is our farm source. Dr. Aaron <laughs> okay. Wilson is the climatologist. They always come together on the podcast with us, and they're going to kill me for mixing their names together. Okay. Yeah, I just sure, made them yeah. one person. I, <laughs> I mean, our, our data supports what Dr. Aaron Wilson would say. I mean, annual rate uh, precipitation. The, the amount of precipitation we get in a year is, is definitely increased. I mean, if we go back to 1970, mm -hmm. um, the average for the, the Miami Valley would have been about 37 inches of rain a year. And now we're a little bit over 42 inches a year. That's a, that's a 30 year average. So yeah, it's gone up five inches. Um, there are some months that it's gone up more than in others. Um, and, um, you know, as far as intensity and, and that sort of thing, um, it gets generally, you know, if you look at uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and if you look at their analysis for the United States, you know, in general, the Midwest, uh, there does seem to be some, some evidence of increase in intensity of events. Um, we've looked closely at some of our stations. It's, it's a little bit murkier. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, some stations, maybe uh, we are seeing an increase. Now, we're, we're not designed really to look at hourly and, uh, you know, two-hour kinds of events. We can look at 24-hour events and, and, and multiple days. There is some evidence to suggest maybe um, at some stations that that's going up, and we're looking at that closer, but, um, um, you know, that's still kind of an evolving and we're paying close attention to that. That's good. I mean, I think that's probably what everybody has to do is just kind of think out ahead and, and keep monitoring. Um, Sarah, now that you're with us, let's talk a little bit about what you are doing with the partnerships. Um, what does that mean exactly? I'm gonna unmute myself. There we go. <laughs> Before I say any words, um, well, we, we have quite a few different partnerships, and that is one of the strengths of the Miami Conservancy District. I always say that that is one of our special gifts, is the ability to pull in multiple jurisdictions and organizations into one room, whereas they might not be able to work with each other just one-on-one -on -one or a couple of them, we can put them under an umbrella and facilitate conversations and we can, we're just stronger together than as partners than we would all trying to do the same thing or competing things individually. So one of the, the big partnerships that we have been working on for really over a decade now is the Great Miami Riverway which is a regional travel and tourism campaign that stretches from Sydney along the Great Miami River down through all the riverfront cities, uh, now through actually Hamilton, Great Parks of Hamilton County. That will, wow. that's a special announcement happening tomorrow, but I'll give you guys a sneak. Yes! Yay! Inside scoop! 
Inside Scoop, we are announcing that tomorrow the Great Parks of Hamilton County is joining our partnership. So not a, we used to stop at Hamilton, Ohio, and now we're down through Hamilton County. It's very exciting. Yeah. But all of those riverfront cities and counties and park districts are working together to use that river to um, drive tourism, mm -hmm. attract new businesses. This is really about workforce attraction and retention and economic development. So making this region active, exciting, and fun, we already have all those things, but we really need to do a better job of telling everyone that story, that that is that is the Dayton region, that is the Great Miami River region, that we are something special and you would want to come live here and bring your business here. Yeah, I think that's awesome. It really is beautiful and very lucky to have a beautiful river that runs literally through the entire Miami Valley. Um, and it is, it's very attractive to be waterfront or to have the ability for people that might not, you know, be right on the river, but you're close enough to drive and canoe or kayak or, you know, just take a walk along the bike paths and, and things that we do have going on. Um, so obviously heading all the way down to Hamilton County, that's really exciting. Um, but for people now, and McCall, we, we taught, we pretty much brought this up in almost every podcast mm -hmm. with COVID, you know, you want to be able to do things safely, do things with your family. Um, and, and being outside and in nature seems like at least it's one resource and locally we do have it. So do you want to touch on that with this pandemic that we're all experiencing? Um, you know, has there been any new programs and any one of you can chime in on this? How has that changed what you're doing? This is our outdoor spaces became a lifeline to our communities when everything else was shut down. Nature was still open and the riverway includes not just the river itself. That's what binds us together or the river runs through it. But it's, it's also about these beautiful parks that are in our riverfront cities. It's about our beautiful spaces. It's that bike trail that runs through so many of our our communities and allows people to get outside. And during the beginning of the crisis, when we were um, told to stay home, we saw the bike trail usage increase in some places over 100%. Wow. From a regular day, we saw the usage to the parks along the trail increase more than 50%. Sometimes, some days, every parking lot was full and our park districts were telling us this has never happened before. <laughs> And then things like bike, bike purchasing was up nationally over 128%. So it's really became a place that where we could still get outside and enjoy and be safe and not go insane being locked in our houses all day, right? Yeah. So the riverway, but now that the riverway is reopened, mm -hmm. so now we can go back to some of those favorite restaurants. We can go back to those shops. Um, you know, they're all doing such a good job of, of making sure that we're safe. So it's, it's really the river plus everything in those communities that, that we get to enjoy. And I'd have to agree with that. I, I, whether you are someone that canoes or, you know, you're someone that just likes to ride the bike. I know that I personally, I just have a little bit of a fear getting on a canoe or, you know, getting <laughs> in water. <laughs> uh, that's a self problem, self issue, but I do enjoy 
seeing people on the water. I mm -hmm. enjoy being able to walk and, and having that beautiful landscape. I grew up near a river, um, the Hudson River actually in New York, and there's just mm. something so beautiful about it and being near the water. Um, so my question is, you know, now we're expanding down into Hamilton County. I mean, what are some of the new projects, you know, with this new, I think, drive for everybody to get out into nature. Is there anything special that's that's coming um, down the line, whether it's in months or years from now? What are some plans? Recreation. So we have some gaps in the bike trail on the Great Miami Rec Trail that that allows a it's a gap um, between Sydney and Piqua. And if we fill that gap, then we'll be able to ride off road on these safe bike trails from Sydney all the way down to, then there's a couple small gaps um, as you get closer to Middletown that you might have to jump on the road for just a little bit and then back on the bike trail. There are already plans to close these gaps and make them all off-road. So those are very exciting. We're very excited to have all those gaps. Um, it, you know, it'd be one bike trail right. that you can go from Cincinnati all the way to Sydney. But then some of our riverfront cities have really fun plans about riverfront parks. And for example, Piqua is in the process of developing their new Lock 9 riverfront park. And it just is going to activate that whole part of downtown Piqua, just like Riverscape activated downtown Dayton or the um, Treasure Island Park activated that part of Riverfront Troy. So those, those two things are very exciting. Um, there's just a lot of stuff in the works. Our, our Riverfront cities really have stepped up and are, are making these really fun places for people to go. Love that. I think that will be really exciting for people. Um, just, I mean, obviously Dayton, McCall and I are uh, near Riverscape probably the most than some of the other Riverfront and it really is so fun and beautiful. Um, so that's great to hear that more cities are really taking advantage of that and expanding um, what they can see. I want to switch back a little bit back to COVID, but more for Mike and Kurt. Um, when we did all have to shut down, we, McCall and I had done a previous episode with RAPCA, and one thing that they couldn't do was as many observations, um, just because, you know, for the time being, we had that brief, like, legitimate government, you know, shutdown. Did that impact your department? Were you always deemed essential? Um, you know, I guess, has it changed workflow for you two in, in what you guys are doing? Um, I can jump in there first, and, and, and Mike's welcome to jump in whenever. Yes and no. Okay. Um, the reality is we have to keep moving. Um, our, because the, the dams and the levees and the things we do are critical to the safety and the well-being of our citizens, our communities, um, these are essential services. So even though... Um, Many of us in the office are working from home most of the time. Um, you know, we have a lot of protocols in place just like everybody else does, but our, our field staff, and, and Mike can say the same thing about the water collection people, the water monitoring, um, our maintenance staff are still out in the field doing the maintenance on a daily basis. Uh, we've implemented um, protocols like only one person per vehicle and mm -hmm. keeping your um, workspaces cleaner and wearing a mask and those type of things. But the reality is work still has to go on and we still have to provide these services in a new world. 
right? I, Colin and I had the same thing. I mean, we still had to deliver our broadcast forecast and cover severe weather. We just learned right. how to do it from our homes and different ways that we function in the studio. So I, I figured you'd have maybe a few changes. I just didn't know, uh, you know, to what degree. Um, yeah, we're all becoming experts in Zoom meetings. <laughs> right. And yeah. This podcast is a yeah. this podcast is how, an example of that. <laughs> I don't know how we did this a hundred years ago without cell phones and without right. email and you know it's we're doing what we have to do and, and still getting it done. Yeah. There have there have been some advantages for me as I pull people together. Everybody's calendars, they can jump on for a quick meeting, whereas I might not have been able to get them to travel, you know, for an hour to mm -hmm. the headquarters building to meet. And we've also been able to attract some nationally recognized speakers to help educate people on whatever topic, water topic that we're, we're trying to get, you know, we couldn't have gotten that speaker to travel in. So there, yes, it's very challenging, but we're trying to take advantage of things too. Yeah, And I have to agree with you, Sarah, even just this example of the vodcast, being able to see your faces and put a face to this elusive thing that people know <laughs> is happening, um, but to be able to see that there's actually uh, real people behind it all, it, it's really an awesome uh, thing for us to provide to the public. Um, I wanted to ask just a quick question because it popped in my mind when I talked to Brenda months ago when this really initiated perhaps speaking with you guys. What is it about the structure that is set up to keep those neighborhoods from flooding? Basically, the water goes into the drain and it floods, uh, runs into the river, but what happens when the river is so high that it's gonna back up the, the drainage spout? There's actually something that's put in place, if I'm correct, Kurt, I think that you'd be able to answer, that keeps the water from backing up into the neighborhood, correct? Yeah, and it's... Um pretty much in every city there's there's storm sewers that, that collect the water and take it to the river to, to get it out of your neighborhoods um, but as you say as the river comes up it has a potential for backing into the storm sewers so we have floodgates basically physical closures on all of the storm sewers that when the river gets to a certain level and depending on where the storm sewer is and the elevation of the neighborhood and a lot of complexities but basically we have to go out and close the floodgates to keep the river from backing up. Um, in many areas, there's also pump stations related to that where if it keeps on raining and the storm sewer fills up, then you have to be able to physically pump the water from the city into the river. So, and, and we work with all the communities in, in maintaining these systems and um, so we can keep the water from the neighborhoods and put it in the river where it belongs. So is it a manual thing to trigger that, or is there a sensor that says the water is getting too high? You know, how are you um, guys uh, alerted to that this drain needs to be shut off, basically? We need, that's why one big reason why we need our stream gauges working. Okay. Um, that's, a, that's a check, but we also have staff out in the field that uh, as that water level when the river begins to come up, they're, they're uh, going on to duty and they're, they're making manual checks of, of the river level and, and watching it as well. So what would you suggest to a resident if they start seeing water um, starting to increase in their neighborhood? Is there a number? Who should they call to say, hey, I've experienced flooding, maybe not just this time, but several times before? 
and yeah, unfortunately, I don't know that there's one right answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, back to what we're seeing of more precip, um, there's some areas where the storm sewer systems may be inadequate or we're just getting more rain than the storm sewer system can handle. So I think people are seeing some localized flooding um, in other areas that may be, um, you know, is there a problem? Is the floodgate not closed? Is the river backing up? So um, if they think it is river water coming back into the system, they should probably call us. A lot of times it's just rainwater that hasn't gotten to the river yet. Mm -hmm. So there's, many answers to that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually kind of interesting, McCall, because that to me sounds like if we have more flash flood events, which are, like you said, mm -hmm. heavy rain so quickly, it's not necessarily the river because that takes right. more of a longer rain event, a uh, different type of mechanism than just, it's raining so hard over, which we had, um, we've had some pretty intense localized yeah. flash flood events here in the Miami Valley, even down in Cincinnati. And that's not necessarily, that has nothing to do with the Great Miami River. So that right. is an interesting um, differentiation that people might not really be able to make um, because, yeah. you know, yeah. And it sparks the question, things. yeah, it sparks the question of is there or should there be some kind of centralized data keeping, you know what I mean, of like this area tends to see flooding in these bigger rain events and is there a solution and, you know, yeah. just a thought. <laughs> just thinking all the time guys we yeah. appreciate it we we do think we do think big like that and in fact uh, many of us are, are participate on committees or different um, conversations that go beyond the great miami river i'm on the steering committee for the ohio river basin alliance i'm oh, actually yeah. the chair for um flood flood protection the the committee that works on flood protection and so we're trying to you know find out what everyone else is doing, but then also work together. Yeah. To see if we can't make a difference. And we've just, uh, the Ohio River Basin Alliance is about to release a plan that will hopefully move some of those conversations forward. Yeah, that's good to have like a central conversation between agencies. Yeah, yes, it's a lot. Well, this was a great conversation that we've gotten to have with you guys. Honestly, I've learned a lot more than I ever used to know about the Miami yes. Conservancy District, and I think we're probably not the only ones. You guys are one of those entities where uh, it's so important, and you're keeping people safe, and they might not even realize all that you're doing to do that. So I hope that this was able to kind of shed light um, a little bit on that. And of course, Sarah, always great to talk about you know, what the beautification and some of the really great advantages that, that the cities along the river are able to take advantage of. So we really appreciate you all being here um, and talking with us. Um, McCall, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, I would just say if you're listening or watching and you have any questions, you know, that maybe Kirstie or I did not think of, be sure to send us a message and we'll yeah. pass it along to Kurt, Mike, or Sarah and see if we can get a response for you. Because I feel like 30 minutes wasn't enough. I feel like yeah. I could have had more and more things to talk about with you guys. So certainly we'll have you back probably maybe in the spring. I was going to say more stuff. in the spring, we'd it would to, be great. We'd yeah. love to come back anytime to talk about our programs and how great our communities are and, and anything about the river. Just let us know. Yeah, Thank this, you guys. it was great to talk with all of you. Maybe next time, if we do it again, we can we talk, talk a little bit about water quality. Yes, yeah. that would be a great topic. That can be a, that one I think could be its own, uh, mm -hmm. its own podcast episode because yeah. 
Also so important. Uh, well, thank you all so much for joining us and for listening. Um, if you have not uh, watched or listened to some of our other episodes, please make sure that you listen to them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. And of course, uh, we have vodcasts or video versions of this episode on our free WHIO streaming app, also on WHIO.com. So thank you for joining us. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.